for being here so much. Thank you, my friends. It's good to be with you again. I uh, have the pleasure of being accompanied by a citizen of Mount Airy. My oldest granddaughter, Faith, is with me. Uh, She lives here in Mount Airy, but um, all of the kids are staying with us this weekend. And I said, anybody want to come with me? And she said, yeah, I'll come. So glad to have her with me. And as I was sitting here during the break, I was was just looking around at... um, the joy uh, in this room, and it, um, it reminded me of uh, one of the effects of the gospel is that if, when people really have understood and experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has an effect on them. It makes them both humble and happy. Humble because they have acknowledged that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and so to really understand the gospel humbles us. Uh, But they also know that their sins are forgiven. And when you know that, that is a source of the deepest joy. And when you combine humility with happiness, that is a very attractive combination. As a matter of fact, if you think about it a little bit, you'd just love to be around people that are both humble and happy. Because they're just attractive. You just like to be with them. And so when you have a church full of people that understand the gospel, have experienced it, are both humble and happy, that's a, that's a winning combination. So uh, the key is just to um, share that with other people because when they come in here, uh, they just love to be around people like this. And then when you show any kind of interest, especially in new people, it's cold, cruel, hard world out there. And uh, when people find fellowship like we have in the body of Christ, it, uh, it really does attract. And then they'll listen to that message. Well, my friends, um, last week, as you will recall, we were in the uh, third chapter of Second Peter. The third chapter of Second Peter. And we're talk- we were talking about the end of the world Uh, And you may recall, uh, just briefly by way of reminder, that the two things that are going to characterize the end of the world are that it's going to be a cataclysmic, universal, destructive time. Um, And I, I think I said that really isn't all that unusual in understanding in our world today because there's a whole genre of apocalyptic films about meteors hitting the earth and tremendous destruction. And Second Peter chapter 3 talks about the, the elements melting with fervent heat, that the heavens and the heavenly bodies, including the earth, are going to be destroyed. And it's actually not going to be an annihilation, but it's going to be a kind of destruction that leads to a renewed heavens and earth a new heavens and a new earth, but in that new heavens and new earth, there's going to dwell righteousness. So along with this cataclysmic end, there's going to be something attached to it called the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the great and dreadful day of the Lord when Jesus himself returns to execute vengeance on his enemies. It's going to be a time of weeping and wailing, When he appears, he will be seen by all. And so this idea of 
the end of the world is not new for people, uh, but the idea of the end of the world combined with the judgment of the ungodly is a very inconvenient truth for this world. And so scoffers come scoffing and they say, where is the proof of his coming? Everything continues as it always had since the beginning. But remember, there was a world that once was, and that world experienced a judgment through a flood. And then there is the world that now is. But Peter's reasoning was that God is going to again come in judgment, this time not with water but with fire, and then there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So we right now are dwelling at a time between the ages. You see, the age to come, what I'm talking about, the new heavens and the new earth, that age to come has actually been inaugurated with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who began something called the kingdom of God. And it has come, but it has not come in its fullness. That's why when Jesus said, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then the kingdom, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It has. But he also said, we should pray, thy kingdom come. So has the kingdom come or hasn't it? And the answer is yes. It has both come, but it has not come in its fullness. We enter into this kingdom of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns over us, and we see him reigning in us redemptively, and we gather together in the church to remind ourselves of these things because Jesus has not come as king universally in the world in that full sense. So it's important when we gather together because we hear the preaching of the Word of God in the Scriptures and we worship together this King who has come but is coming again. We can't see Him, but we believe in Him. And we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory because God has given us the gift of faith to believe in a Savior whom we haven't seen. How do we know about Him? Well, we know about Him because of the message of the Gospel, and that message has been preserved for us in the words of Holy Scripture. Uh, the New Testament in particular is the eyewitness account of the apostles who were with Jesus, and they wrote down what He said and what He did. And then they reflected on it, and they interpreted it in the letters and so what we're going to read today in 2 Peter is from one of those apostolic eyewitnesses, Peter himself. So I'm going to be reading starting in chapter 3 and verse 11, which we actually covered last week, but I'm going to kind of give us a running start, like a broad jumper, running broad jump. We'll back up a little bit and read chapter 3, verse 11 to the end of the book. So if you I don't know if it will be on the screen or not. I hope so. But if not, please follow along in your Bibles. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And let me just pause for a moment here. Uh, last week I told you what's going to happen. Uh, today we're going to talk about, well, okay, if that's the case, how should we then live? So watch for that. There's instruction that's going to come to us. Okay. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What things? The heavens and the earth. These are sobering words. And remember from last week when the Lord returns, the world as we now know it will come to an end. Mockers will laugh and scoffers will scoff, but it will happen. And when it does, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Not only the heavens, but the earth. They'll be destroyed in a catastrophic, cataclysmic, violent upheaval. Everything will be affected. And then there will be a final judgment resulting in the destruction of the ungodly. That's found in chapter 3, verse 7. This is what we call the end of the world. There was a famous poet by the name of T.S. Eliot. You might remember from your high school English, you probably read one of his poems, The Hollow Men. It was written after the horror of World War I. And it's the last lines that uh, have come down to us, and, and you may have heard them. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang but with a whimper. Well, actually, no. And T.S. Eliot himself in later life said, I, I wouldn't write the poem like that again. The way the world ends will not be with a whimper, but with a bang. And in that event, known as the apocalypse, apocalypse is just the Greek word for revelation, that is the time when Jesus Christ will be revealed, the revelation, the apocalypse. And when he is revealed to all mankind in the fullness of his glory, at that moment, it will be apocalypse now. The end of the world. Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds 
and every eye will see him. And in other words, it will be a universal coming. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail because of him. Jesus promised to return and he will. This is the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is something we don't talk that much about, but it is here in the scripture and it's throughout the Bible actually. Uh, Peter mentioned Paul, that he writes of these things. And one of the places where he does it is in 2 Thessalonians. Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And Jesus himself spoke of this day. He said, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Do you see how his coming will be attached with a judgment? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. In light of this, Peter asks the somewhat rhetorical question, what kind of people should we be? How should we then live? What should we be doing? And when we look a little more closely at these final verses in 2 Peter, there is a word that's repeated and that, well, it kind of stitches the text together. And that word is waiting, waiting, or looking for, anticipating. Um, waiting, not in a passive sense, but an active kind of waiting. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, we are looking for the coming of day of God. We're waiting for uh, new heavens and a new earth. All right, okay, but what are we supposed to do while we're waiting? And we spend a lot of time waiting, don't we? Waiting in doctor's offices, waiting in line, waiting in a traffic light, waiting, 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 waiting for the kids to be picked up. Uh, just lots of times that we're waiting. We spend a lot of time waiting. What are, what are we supposed to, what's the deal with waiting? Uh, Peter has some words uh, for us in this regard. And remember, uh, the overall context here, Peter is about to die. This is a farewell letter. He says, my departure is at hand. He's like, uh, he's like an old grandfather like I am. And he wants to impart something to his children and grandchildren before he leaves this earth. So these are important things Peter's saying. He's on his deathbed, so to speak, with his friends gathered around. This is what he wants them to hear. He's got four exhortations in this passage. They're very simple. We'll just take them in order. The first one is simply a call to holiness. 
chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. Make every effort to be found by him without spot or blemish. It's just a call to holiness. Uh, in verse 11, he said we should be people whose lives are characterized by holiness and godliness, righteousness. That's putting it in a positive sense. Here, he's putting it in kind of a negative sense. Yeah, holiness and godliness. No, no blot, no blemish. Now, blots and blemishes are physical, or rather, uh, figurative language. Um, I, I remember as a teenager looking in the mirror at the spots and blemishes, pimples, ah. You know, I thought once you got out of the teenage years, there wouldn't be any more pimples, but there are. There are spots and blemishes all over the place. And what Peter's saying is uh, we should have faces without pimples or shirts without food stains. Um, in the language of the Bible, these things, blots and blemishes, often were referred to the kind of animal that was not acceptable for a sacrifice. When the people brought a sacrifice to the Lord, it had to be a, an animal without spot, without defect, without blemish. Uh, God didn't appreciate it when uh, people would bring to him for sacrifice animals that were maimed, that weren't any good anyway. And, and so this idea of blots and blemishes comes through the Scripture as the kind of offerings we are to bring to the Lord, uh, the kind of lives that we are to live. Because we've been forgiven by Him, we've been set apart by Him, it's for the purpose of being holy. It's because we belong to Him that we are to separate ourselves from the world. Uh, we didn't read chapter 2 of Second Peter. If we had, you see, it's a very, very odd chapter uh, full of condemnation of false teachers. And the one thing that characterizes the false teachers, they are blots and blemishes at your feasts. They're just horrible people. Uh, if you read Second Peter, uh, you'll see that. But they were false teachers that had somehow wheedled their way into the church. Well, we have to be aware of these things. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, the false teachers of chapter 2 are blots and blemishes. They have eyes full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. We're not to be like that because the new heavens and the new earth that's coming is going to be characterized by righteousness. If it's going to be characterized by righteousness then, well, guess what? Righteousness right now has a place in our lives, or it should. It should be something that we are diligent about, something that we strive for, something that while we're waiting, we're looking to increase in this area of godliness. God's preparing a place for us, uh, but he's also preparing us for that place. So what we call in Christian theology sanctification, which usually is meant in the progressive sense of becoming more and more like Jesus, okay? this is an important part of the Christian life. I just uh, took a seminary course, uh, we finished it up yesterday, called Personal Sanctification over at Reformed Theological Seminary. I went with a number of people from our pastoral team at Covenant Life uh, because as leaders we want to be serious about growing in holiness because we want to be good examples to the flock 
because we want you to grow in personal holiness as well. It's an important thing. You don't just say, yes, I believe, and you sit down and just wait for the coming of the Lord. No, we're to be occupied while we're living here, becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ, conformed his image, growing in grace and in godliness. Are you growing as a Christian? I hope so. Because I know that's a part of this church, the idea that, yes, we're justified by grace through faith, but sanctification is God's purpose for us becoming more and more godly. And folks, how we do that, it's hard, but it's not complicated. It's by making use of the means of grace, especially things like reading our Bibles, memorizing Scripture, meditating on it, Letting it change us from within as our minds are renewed. It's things like coming together as a body in the church so that we can encourage one another to keep going. It's things like receiving the sacraments, the body and blood of the Lord that reminds us of the gospel and through the Holy Spirit points us heavenward as we experience the, the very reality of God by His Spirit. Means of grace like prayer, as we talk and commune with God and we ask him, Lord, what would you have me do? And where are those areas you want me to grow? And that sensitivity, this all is part of this, this business called sanctification. I hope, that's, I hope that's a real element in your life so that you're not a blot or a blemish, uh, that you're growing in the Lord. This is the exhortation. What are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting for him to come? Growing to be more and more like him. And I'm sure that's true with you. It's just... We need these reminders, and Peter wants to remind us before he, he wants to remind these people before they die, and, uh, and I want to do that too. So uh, the interesting thing there, he says that, that so when Jesus comes, that he finds us uh, doing this. That's part of the language that to be found in him. Well, Peter was one of the closest human beings to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter was actually, in saying this, he was remembering something that happened. Uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, uh, Jesus shared a parable with his disciples, and Peter was right in the middle of it. Follow as I read. Luke, chapter 12, verse uh, 35. Uh, Peter's, uh, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to return. You see that? Waiting for their master to return from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Peter said, and this is verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. See, Peter was right in the middle of that exchange with the Lord, and the topic was the Lord's return. And Jesus' parable was that the servants of the Lord, 
uh, should live in such a way that when the master returns, when Jesus returns, he'll find them faithfully occupied doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then, amazingly, it will be his joy to serve them. This is not like the employee who says, "Uh uh-oh, the boss is back, I better get back to work. No, this is the employee that's just doing the work because he's an employee. This is the servant that's doing the work because he's a servant. So Peter says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter's just recalling what the Lord said to him And he's faithfully passing it on to you and me. And then Jesus' abrupt comment at the end of this about coming to cast fire on the earth begins to make more sense when we see it in the light of his second coming. Uh, That that word be diligent could also be translated make every effort. So wait a minute, I thought, you know, I thought, you know, our religion is a religion of grace, not effort, right? We're not saved by works. Well, actually, we are saved by works. It's just not our works. It's Jesus' works. But once we're saved, it doesn't mean there's no effort. No, the Christian life and the life of grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. You can't earn it. But is there to be effort expended in the Christian life? Absolutely. It takes effort. We're not bumps on stumps. We're servants of the Lord. Effort is necessary. Diligent effort is necessary to follow Jesus. It's hard work to be a Christian. We have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But we can do so because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's a synergism. It's a work together. We work, God works in us. We are being prepared to live in a new heavens and a new earth. And when we work toward that end... We, as he is glorified, one day will be glorified, but we actually find great satisfaction in serving the Lord. I'm a servant of the Lord. Now, I'm an unprofitable servant, but I am a servant. And I want to tell you something. I find great satisfaction in serving the Lord. It is very, very satisfying. Now, we all have jobs to do in different areas, whether it's worship or acts of service or, you know, I'm talking about within the church and then at home as moms and dads and children and employees. And all, we all have got work to do. And when you do that work diligently as unto the Lord, there is a certain satisfaction that comes with us. Don't let yourself be robbed of that, my friends. This, this is the call to holiness. It requires our diligence, requires our effort, but it's really good to put your head down on the pillow at the end of the day and say, I haven't done it perfectly, but I have, I have sought to be faithful. That's the first exhortation, a call to holiness. Second exhortation, Peter says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, think about 
regard, reckon the patience of our Lord as salvation for ourselves and hopefully for others. Uh, Peter spoke of patience already in chapter 3 and verse 9. He said that patience of the Lord is forbearance, it's long-suffering, but his patience should not be misconstrued. Why is it taking so long for the Lord to come back? Well, this is the patience of the Lord. This is his long-suffering forbearance. He's not willing that any should perish, but he's patient, desiring all to be saved. God's not, patience should not be misconstrued as us thinking God's unconcerned about how we live. He's not slow. He's not slack. He's not negligent. He's not indifferent. He's patient. But his patience is an aspect of his long-suffering care. And that is an aspect of salvation. Lord was very patient with me. Lord still is very patient with me. And possibly more than any other person, Peter understood the importance of the long-suffering and patience of the Lord. You know, he denied the Lord. Not once, not just twice, but three times. If anybody should have been wiped off, it would have been Peter. But Jesus was patient with him. That should be very encouraging to us. And by the way, that wasn't the only time Peter messed up. Um, I'm uh, going to be preaching from Galatians chapter 2 next week, and that's the passage where Paul had to call out Peter publicly for denying the gospel. So even after he was an apostle, Peter screwed up. Do you think it's possible for us, even as diligent Christians, sometimes to screw up? Yes, it is. I want you to know that even when that happens, the Lord is patient. And we should appreciate that. As a matter of fact, we're supposed to count on that. We're supposed to count it. Count it something. Count this patience of the Lord as an evidence of his salvation for us And also, uh, this is a time for evangelism. This is a time before the Lord comes for us to by our words and our witness in our works to make the gospel appealing to our friends and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students uh, because when he comes back, it will be too late. This time won't last forever. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't yet given your life to the Lord Jesus, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. His arms are extended to you and he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you're a child here today, you know you have to believe for yourself at some point. You're raised in a family where there are believers and you just kind of, okay, yeah, mom and dad, okay, yeah. But there comes a time when you say, do I really believe this myself? And yeah, you have to do that. But Jesus wants you to. And this is a time when he's holding out his hand to you. And so if you are a child here today and you don't know really what it means to be a Christian and to believe this for yourself, talk to your mom and dad or talk to one of the pastors here. They'll be happy to talk to you 
about how we come to know the Lord. Uh, before we get to the last two exhortations, uh, Peter seems to take a little detour here. And I don't know if you noticed it, um, but as he's talking, he says, our beloved brother Paul, he also wrote about these things. Uh, some of the things that our beloved brother Paul has written are kind of hard to understand. And unlearned and unstable people twist them to their own destruction. It's interesting. Our beloved brother Paul. Now this was undoubtedly written after Paul called out Peter in one of the Galatian churches. I would imagine if you read that in, second, in Galatians chapter 2, Peter couldn't have been too pleased at the time. I'll just briefly tell you what happened. Um, Peter was a Jew who believed that the gospel was for the Gentiles. And he went to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 11, and he shared the gospel kind of sort of against his Jewish will with these Gentile people. And they came to know the Lord. The Holy Spirit fell. They began to speak in other tongues. And Peter said, yes, the Lord is saving the Gentiles. We have any Gentiles here this morning? I'm half Jewish, but um, most of you are probably Gentiles. You should be very, very grateful that the gospel is not just for the Jews. To the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. Okay. Well, Peter experienced this, but when he was with the Galatian churches, he would eat with the Gentiles, but then some people came from Jerusalem that were kind of, you know, this is for Jews only. And you Gentiles cannot be Christians unless you follow the Lord laws of Moses, uh, including and especially getting circumcised. Well, when Peter said that in, to the Galatians, uh, what, what he was doing was, um, I'm, I'm sorry, when Peter was with the Galatian churches, he was eating with the Gentiles and they were fine. But some people came to Jerusalem that kind of had this, no, it's just for Jews. And when Peter saw them because of the fear of man, he actually stopped eating with the Gentiles. And Paul called him out publicly and said, what are you doing? If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles, why do you insist that the Gentiles live as Jews? So he called out Peter for his hypocrisy. Has anybody ever pointed out hypocrisy in your life? I hope your wife has. <laughs> it's usually where if it's going to come, it's, you know, because she loves you. Okay. When somebody points out hypocrisy in your life, how does, how does it feel? Does it feel good? No. Your first thought is, I hate you. That's the first thought. I hate you. And after you get back that, if you're humble, you say, okay, maybe I need to learn something here. Well, getting called out, you know, by your wife in the privacy of your bedroom is one thing. Getting called out, if, you know, if somebody stood up here and said, Robin, you're a hypocrite because of this. I, I'd look for a place to hide. Well, Peter, God bless him, somehow received that word of rebuke and goes on to refer to our beloved brother, Paul. That'll tell you something about the humility of Peter. He's, he's a great example for us. Well, what he says here in this passage, right near, he says, our beloved brother, Paul, writes about these things too. And some things he writes are hard to understand 
And people twist what he said like they do the other scriptures. Did you notice that? That's very important because what Peter's doing here in the New Testament is he's putting Paul's letters on a par with Old Testament scripture. So in the development of the New Testament canon, what we regard as the books of the New Testament, this testimony from Peter is very important. Paul's letters are just as much scripture as the Old Testament writings. That's just a little bit of a kind of a bypath here that we notice. So, uh, interesting. Well, Peter is telling us something important that false teachers will use Scripture and twist it, not just to their own destruction, but for yours and uh, my destruction. In other words, there are people out there who misuse Scripture. Did you know that? We call them heretics. And they're all over the place, especially on the Internet. And they twist Scripture, and we have to be aware of it. Peter wants us to be aware of it. Uh, you and I have to be aware that there is something called false teaching, and there are people who are false teachers. And they usually don't come with horns and with a tail and with a pitchfork and say, Hi, I'm a false teacher sent from the devil. I'm here to deceive you and rob you of your salvation. Uh, they don't say it like that. They actually are usually very smooth. And we have to be aware of these things. And there are two ways that we become aware of, false, uh, of this falsity. Uh, and it's by examining the teaching in the light of true doctrine. The light of true doctrine comes to us from the scriptures Say, oh, well, this, uh, hmm, how do I know what true doctrine is? Actually, um, this is a very important task of theology. And true doctrine about the essential things actually comes down to us in the history of the church through something called creeds and confessions. Uh, you've read the Apostles' Creed. Uh, do you think it matters if there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes, it's, it's a pretty big deal, Okay. Uh, so if somebody says that, well, actually, there aren't one God and three persons. There's three gods, Father and Son, and they misunderstand and misinterpret the doctrine of the Trinity. Do you think that that's important? That's very important. It's important for us to understand doctrine. One of our jobs as Christians, one of the jobs of pastors is to teach sound doctrine. So that when the person from the Jehovah's Witnesses comes to your door and says, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus is God, but God with a small g. And you go, hmm, wait a minute, that doesn't sound quite right. I thought he was divine. And they can twist the scriptures. And if you are untaught, you can be deceived. So that's one of the ways we understand if a teacher is false if the teaching is false, but another way that we can understand it is by examining the life of the teacher. That's why Jesus said about false prophets, you'll know them by their fruits. That's why if your spirituality is limited to fellowship on the internet only, you are likely to go astray because there's no way that you can know about the character of a teacher who is anonymous except for an internet profile. It's like a guy who does his business out of the trunk of his car and he promises to sell siding and do the work on your house and, uh, 
And yet, you know, can I really trust this guy? He operates out of the trunk of his car. And this is how people get scammed. You need to know the life of the people who are teaching you. Uh, so this is important. It's one of the ways that we can keep ourselves from this danger. Because the third exhortation is that you and I should take care and be on our guard. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So you don't slip and fall. This is the danger we have to be on guard against, the error of lawless people who wish to carry you away. Paul also warned about this in his writings. He talked about being tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Peter had described these lawless people in chapter 2 being characterized by rebellion, by sensuality. There are many false teachings around us today. A lot of crazy ideas about the end time. A lot of different gospels. There's a prosperity gospel where the central feature is health and wealth. There are teachings that attempt to justify an anything-goes sexual ethic. That chapter 2 of this book of 2 Peter talks about the teachers, the false teachers, and one of the things that characterizes them is their sensuality. Uh, sensuality is a big deal today. Um, this business of sexual ethics, boy, this is, this is what's going on today. The Christian sexual ethic is very simple and very straightforward. Let me give it to you. All sexual relations, all sexual practice and expression are to be reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That's a distillation of the Christian sexual ethic. Now, if you believe that, and if you say that, it'll probably get you canceled today. But this is what it, we've always believed. This is what we believe now. And there are not 50 different genders. It's not all on a there are two genders. It's a man and it's a woman. And there are genetic alterations. There are things that because of the fall, chromosomal differences. There's, you know, I've known people with Klinefelter's syndrome and with Turner's syndrome. And so there are some things that are a little bit confusing, but overall it's not a mystery. It's not a spectrum. And we are not free to just do whatever we feel like doing because if it feels good, do it. Or how can it be right, wrong when it feels so right and all that kind of stuff. But this is what you get today. And so for you and I to just maintain a Christian sexual ethic, uh, you'll stick out like a sore thumb. But that's okay. That's okay. When I was uh, young, I, I was a, a, a radical. I marched against the war in Vietnam. I had long hair. I was a nonconformist, except that I looked like all the other hippies. But we wanted to be radical. We wanted to change the world. Now I'm an old man, and you know what? I'm radical. I actually believe the Bible. I believe things like a Christian sexual ethic. That's radical. 
that'll get you canceled. So be it. Be in good company. Today, the modern self says there's no boundaries. Anything goes because everyone must be totally free to express himself. Sexual freedom in any form is good. Are you unsure of who you are, of your sexuality? Then try it all out. I won't elaborate any further, but the Bible says you will reap what you sow. And if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, of the Spirit you'll reap life. Beware that you're not carried away with false teaching of this age. And I'll just say something to the younger people here. Um, When you're young, friends are everything. I mean, friends are so important. Hanging out with friends and friends influencing one another, your peer group, it's like there's a lot of pressure that comes from that. And even more now because you can find out online that you were the only one that wasn't invited to that party. And it can make you really depressed. Well, I had friends. I remember my very best friend was the one that introduced me to weed. And uh, boy, that set in chain a whole process that didn't end well. That was a friend, a really good friend. Got to watch out, friends. Some of your friends, that's great. It's good. If they're following the Lord, you want to be friends with them. But some of the friends that seem like so important right now, uh, kids in maybe 15 years, you might not even remember their names. Uh, One name you will remember, though, and that is mom and dad. Uh, To all the young people here, nobody cares more about your well-being and your eternal well-being than your mom and your dad. Nobody, even though sometimes it might not seem like it, nobody cares more about you than your mom and your dad. And so, just keep that in mind. They're not perfect, we all fall short, but they care about you. All right, so, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. And Peter says, if you're not careful, you can lose your stability I want you to keep your stability. I don't want anyone to slip. All right. Fourth exhortation and the final exhortation. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We find that at the end here. This exhortation to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord is the best antidote there is against apostasy in the Christian life. You want to be kept free from falling down or falling away? The best antidote against apostasy is growing as a Christian. It takes some work on our part, as I said earlier. It takes some effort. Knowing Jesus should be the greatest goal and aspiration of our lives. Knowledge of Him. I love this uh, quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it when the conditions are still unfavorable. And then he said, Favorable conditions never come. The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Yeah, favorable conditions never come. Now that's true, I think, universally. But it's especially true when it comes to knowing our Lord Jesus. Uh, Say something about this. Um, 
you will not serve rightly anyway. You will not serve someone you do not love. And you cannot love someone you do not know. So it really begins with knowing God. When you're growing in your knowledge of God, you're growing in your love for Him. And when you're growing in your love for Him, you're going to grow in your service for Him. He's going to get a kick out of serving the Lord. But you won't serve someone you don't love, and you can't love someone you don't know. So let's get busy knowing the Lord. You know, Jesus calls us to follow him because he wants us to fellowship with him. And knowing him, well, he is the way, the truth, and the life. But it's just not that he knows the way through life. He, he is the way. And he's the destination at the end. And he, he's the truth. It's not just that he has truth and he knows truth. He is truth. And when it comes to abundant life, he's the life. So, so what I'm saying is uh, we can talk about Christianity and the Christian faith and all these things, what we do. But it really does boil down to knowing him, a relationship with him who is a person. Um, sometimes when I want to encourage my kids, I'll send them a text. And one that I sent recently was just a, a simple old gospel song. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. It's just, it just says, have a little talk with Jesus. Right? Tell him all about your troubles. And what will he do? He'll hear you when you cry. And he'll answer by and by. You never heard that song? Have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. He will hear your faintest cry. And he will answer by and by. Yeah, see, that's the problem. I don't want an answer by and by. I want an answer here and now. But that's called faith. Believing that you're going to get an answer by and by. So that's not an easy life, but that's the life we live. We believe in Him, we trust in Him. And sometimes we get immediate answers and it's wonderful. But you can always talk to Him. He loves you. There's a sentimental old gospel song from over a hundred years ago. And I think most people would say it is corny. But I love it. I would sing it for you, but often when I do sing it, I start to cry. So I'll just say the words. It says, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ears, the Son of God discloses. And He walks with me. And He talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. 
Well, you know, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure others have known it. (laughs) But the point is, he can make you feel like you're the only one. Because in a certain sense, you are. This is not some mass of Christianity that Jesus says. This is no individual people like you who have a real name, who have a real life, who have real problems, who have real needs, and he's a real savior for you. Other people can make you feel somewhat special, but only Jesus can love you to the uttermost. So, growing in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus is the most important thing you can do in waiting for the coming of the Lord. If you're doing that, you want to boil it down to just one thing, grow in your knowledge of Him. And how to do it? Well, of course, it's the Word of God, it's prayer, it's communion with God, it's fellowship, it's all of these things can be means of grace. But that's the goal, that's the thing that's most important. And that's what I pray for each and every one of you. So let me pray for you as I close. Lord, we understand there are certain things that we must do in terms of faithfulness. We've got to take our Christian life serious. We understand that, Lord. Sometimes we get weary, and I would imagine there are some weary people that are here today. Uh, Lord, whether we're flourishing right now or whether we're just plain suffering, would you meet every person here? Would you walk with him and her and talk with them. Just remind them in only the way you can that they belong to you. And Lord, I pray for sweet communion for every single man and woman, boy and girl here. Please don't let anyone get drawn off after the false teachings of this world. Help us, Lord Jesus, to remain and maintain our faith and our trust in you no matter what to put you first. Lord, please bless every man and woman, boy and girl in this congregation, even the little ones that are over in the children's ministry. May you be glorified in our lives and may we ever love and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and